Well, good evening, <clears throat> and it's an honor to be with you again this evening, and I'm not sure who's primarily in charge of this thing, but, oh, there it comes, praise the Lord, that solves some of our dilemma. So, um, I was doing some meditating uh, about what we talked about last night, and uh, my mind sometimes goes in all kinds of different directions, and um, so I want to start this evening by going to 2 Peter chapter 1. So if you just take your Bibles and go to 2 Peter chapter 1. We were talking last night about how we are people of the story and how our mandate is to make the story known. And we were talking about outcomes. And if you remember, one of the outcomes that Asaph gave us was that the younger generation is going to have a sense of history. They're going to understand where they fit in God's story and the implications it has on their life. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter, in his introduction, um, begins talking about um, the necessity of adding to our faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge. And in verse 6, he says, to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience. In verse 7, godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. And then he gives this great promise. He says, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think about that, that's a great picture. We don't want to be barren. We don't want to be barren. We don't want to be unfruitful. We want to be alive. We want to be the kind of people that are very fruitful. And um, verse 9, he says, But if these things are lacking, okay, but he that lacks these things is blind. Now, he's not physically blind, okay? If you read this context, the, Peter isn't suggesting that this person is physically blind, but there's a spiritual blindness here. He says, but he that lacketh these things is blind. And notice what it says. He cannot see afar off. He cannot see afar off. And basically what I think Peter is saying is that he can't make the connections. He's unable to make the connections. Notice that he says, and he hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Now, I don't think Peter is saying that, that this man forgets that he's a Christian. Rather, he pulls himself out of God's story and he fails to understand the implications of the story on his life. Does that make sense? He's blind. And so, he says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but he goes about living his life failing to understand the implications of his Christianity on the here and now. And he becomes unfruitful. He becomes barren. And uh, he lacks all these things. And that's not the kind of believer that we want to be. Uh, we, want to believe, we want to be believers that are the opposite. So tonight, while we're thinking about God's story in education, specifically... Um, okay, this thing went way back to the beginning, so just bear with me. Here we go. We're thinking specifically about tracing the story tonight. 
And uh, so last night I talked about this idea of God's story. Tonight we're just going to unpack what we mean by that. Uh, but we do need to start with a review. And I just gave you a few hints at this a moment ago. We said scripture is primarily A, everybody fill in the blank. It's a story, okay? And so we said okay, the scripture uh, is law, it's poetry, it's prophecy. Um, there's gospels in it. Um, it has all those things and that's all part of it. But it's all found in the context of a story. The law was given in the context of a story. And so scripture is primarily a story. As people of the story, our mandate is to tell the story, make it known. Asaph says in Psalm 78, make the story known. And so he had such a vision for this that he was seeing several generations down, several generations down the line, envisioning a group of people that would live the story. So uh, Asaph's three outcomes are, I gave you three words to start with C. Can anyone remember one of them? Confidence. Yeah, commitment and God consciousness. Three outcomes. Asaph says, you make the story known. You make sure the younger generation embraces this story and you have a generation of people that are confident, they're bold, they're courageous. They're going to have a kind of God consciousness as they go about their lives. They're going to have a sense of history. As they live their life, they'll bring God's works and God's story to bear on the situations that they encounter. And then thirdly, um, they're going to be committed. They're going to have a will to obey. And they're going to be able to walk in the footsteps of Christ, no matter what that path looks like. They'll be able to take up the cross and follow because they're committed to Christ. And so those are the three outcomes. Well, the big question, the big question we're asking tonight is how do we understand God's overarching story? How do we understand this? How do we think about this? And we could spend lots of time unpacking this, but we're going to try to do it in one evening, okay? And so I'm sure there are some things that you'll think about while I'm talking, and um, that's great. So I, I can't cover everything, but I'm just going to, I want to pull out some of the high points and some of the themes, and I want to point you to a couple ways to think about this story. Before we get there, um, George Gallup and Jim Costelli said this, Americans reveal the Bible, but they reveal the Bible, they revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. It is our job to make the story known. And uh, I think sometimes we, we look at ourselves and we think we're doing pretty good. And I am very blessed. I, I do. I do think we are doing really, uh, we're doing a really good job with our education. But let's not assume that we've got it all mastered. Years ago, when I first started teaching, 
I gave my students a series of essays at the end of the year. One of the essays, um, in one of the essays, students were supposed to pick their favorite Bible story and reflect on it, write, write about their favorite Bible story and why it's their favorite and some of the lessons they can learn. And uh, so this one particular student chose the Bible story of how um, Cain stole the birthright from Abel. And so he, he wrote this essay, and, and it was pretty good. But when I first read the essay, I thought, ah, he got the name switched by accident, right? But, uh, just an accident. He'll correct himself as he goes through the paper. But he didn't. He repeated this multiple times the whole way through the paper. Now, if this was just a story that he chose randomly to, re to write about, that would be one thing. But it was his favorite Bible story. Let's not assume that we are doing a really good job at making the story known to the next generation. Even in our settings, we occasionally have students, young people, who do not know the story that well. The world is growing increasingly illiterate when it comes to the Bible. The, the confusion, the complexity, and the things that go along with that are increasing right along with it. If we want to be faithful at seeing the outcomes that Asaph talked about, we have got to make sure that the story is known to the next generation. I flip that picture up here because if you're like me and you take a box full of puzzle pieces, that looks kind of overwhelming. And it's hard to know where do you even begin. Now, I assume, I assume that some of you would be just all right with a bunch of random pieces like that. And with time, you'd start sorting and putting things together. But me, there's not a chance. Um, I need help. I would need the box. I'd need the cover of the box that has the picture on it. You know what I'm talking about? I need that cover. I need to see what it is that I'm trying to put together here. I'd need to see the overarching picture. There are too many people that approach Scripture like this. And they take all the little narratives, the story of Abraham, the story of Isaac, the story of Jacob, the story of Joseph. And they take these individual narratives and they just look at them as individual pieces. One piece at a time. And all of their concentration goes into the one piece. And so they look at it and inspect it. Make all kinds of observations. And, and it's interesting. But we need to take the little pieces and put them together. And we need to put the whole entire puzzle together so we can see what for picture it is that the puzzle is creating. 
maybe another way of thinking about this is to view the scriptures as a dot to dot. And sometimes we get all bogged down in our little pieces. And we look at how the Israelites crossed the Jordan River and stood up the stones. And we start taking this thing and looking at it from side to side. And then we start thinking, well, let's see, what are those stones representing that they stood up? Maybe those stones could represent this and this and this. And we start building parallels and analogies. And we create this sophisticated interpretation. And we miss the point of it all. And so let's make sure that we start connecting the dots and don't create a complex little series of dots and fail to see how it connects to the bigger picture. So we have a series of lines up here and some of you might recognize this sort of thing. Um, in English class or literature class, you might talk about this as, the, as a story plot, plot of a story or a diagram of a story. And uh, you'll notice that my diagram is modified a little bit, and there's a reason for that, which we'll get to in a little bit. But as you know, every great story tends to follow the same format. Every great story starts with an introduction. Okay. Every great story starts with an introduction. The introduction generally includes the main characters and uh, other helpful information that we need to know. Well, every great story has a conflict, and usually we, we mark that as a conflict. Um, there's some kind of um, conflict or source uh, of tension between the characters. And from there, there's what we call uh, the development of the plot, or maybe we call it rising action, as this tension begins to grow and grow and grow. And this climax begins, or not the climax, the conflict begins to expand and grow until all of a sudden we have this climax where everything comes to a head. And uh, that's usually where most stories then just drop off. And you know how... Um, take any story you want that you read, a novel or even a true story, a lot of them are exactly the same. And then it drops off and then you have the end. In the story of the Bible, there's, there's actually like two climaxes, which we'll talk about soon. Um, and then we have the wrap-up where the good, are reward, good is rewarded, the evil are punished, and uh, the, end is, the end takes place. The, the story of the Bible is just like that. And I've wondered, is this an accident? Or do we somehow know within ourselves that that's the way great stories should look? I'm not sure. But it seems to me that God's story um, is first. And uh, so we'll come back to that later. So let's just walk through the story. And uh, if you decide to take notes or want to jot some of these things down, uh, you can just draw, draw this outline on a piece of paper. I'm going to give you some words at each, at each phase that I'd like you to remember, things to think about. 
So this is the overarching story. We start with a prologue or an introduction. We call this creation and, of course, the characters. And we might term it paradise. Um, we are introduced to God in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, and he's the creator. And we are also introduced to mankind. And you'll remember that God made man in his, in his image. Now, it says, let us make man in our image. And then it says, male and female made he them. And so the image starts with this plurality concept of God, okay? The triunity or the trinity. God is a community. And then he made mankind in his image. And so he made mankind to be a type of triunity maybe. He made mankind to be a divine community. And so you have Adam and Eve, and then God breathed into Adam and Eve the breath of life, and there we have it, this divine community. So the image of God in man is not something that I can necessarily image all by myself. It's something that we do together. We image God together as we interact in relationship with each other and we work and worship in God's world together. And so we have um, man made in the image of God. You will remember that um, they were given one limitation, just one. God said, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Just one limitation. There wasn't a series of six or 10 or 12. It was just one. And you'll remember that God declared everything good. The Jews use a word to describe this setting in Eden. They use the word shalom. When we translate the word shalom, we usually translate it, what? Peace. But our idea of peace is just the absence of conflict. For the Jew, the idea of shalom is the way things are supposed to be. Eden was the way things are supposed to be. Shalom. Everything was good. Man was fellowshipping. Mankind was fellowshipping with God. And they were enjoying Eden. Now, God gave them work to do. He gave them work and worship. Work is not part of the curse. Work was given to Adam and Eve before the curse. And sometimes we think today that work is somehow a result of the curse. Adam and Eve were given work to do, to care for the garden. Interestingly enough, work and worship are not that much different. What we do when we work is a form of worship. And as we proceed through the story, we're going to see that our work is part of worship in God's world. And so, this is the introduction. Well, you'll notice or remember that we have the presentation of the conflict in Genesis 3. Uh, I like to refer to this as a crash. Um, I like to use the word crash because, to me, it was much more significant than a fall. 
Now, I've, I've fallen at times, and I've got back up, and I've just went along on my merry way. Um, but this wasn't that kind of thing. When Adam and Eve took of the forbidden fruit, there was a crash. The crash did not only affect mankind. It affected all of creation. And so, um, R.C. Sproul uses a phrase that I like. He says, it was cosmic treason. All of creation in Adam and Eve rebelled against the creator. Interestingly enough, that's what happens in all sin. The creation subverts the authority of the creator and rebels against him. That's sin. And today, when you and I sin, it's because we look to the creation rather than the creator in some way, shape, or form. And so we have this crash that takes place. It left all of creation reeling with a kind of whiplash that we're still feeling and experiencing today. We're still suffering this. We talked about how there was one limitation. How many are there now? We invited a world full of limitations, didn't we? Not just that, but we're still rebelling against limitation. Think about how much of our lives are consumed with just pushing back against limitations that God has put in front of us. And so... The crash takes place. Romans 8. We don't have time to look at all these uh, passages. But Romans 8 talks about um, the groaning that is taking place. Remember that passage? It talks about how creation groans. Can you hear it? Do you hear the groaning that's taking place? Do you let your... When it's time to get up. It's time to get up. (laughs) Very good. Yeah. And he's not, he's not wrong. Death came into the world as a reality. Before that, it wasn't a reality. And you and I are dealing with the reality of death all the time. Cornelius Plantica, in, the, in a book he wrote, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, said, man, things ain't supposed to work this way. What's shalom? The way things are supposed to be. The crash turned everything upside down. Okay? We have a whole entire world that's trying to live upside down. It ain't supposed to work like this. This is not the way things are supposed to be. But somehow we have in our minds... Listen, sometimes in our minds, we think that Christianity turns things upside down. Christianity doesn't turn things upside down. Christianity turns things right side up. And so, we're living in this upside down world. There's a lot of groaning taking place. 
And we need to learn to hear the groaning. The groaning is taking place in music. The world is groaning in their music. It's taking place in secular literature, the movies they make. It's all around. It's in art. The world's groaning. They are longing for something more. They're suffering from the whiplash of sin. And sometimes you and I are guilty of just trying to push it down. You know, it's a little bit like that. I'm sure you swam at times, right? And um, You ever try to take like a beach ball or some kind of ball and push it under the water? Just hold it down? Did you ever try doing that? And you do that for a while and, you know, you're moving around. And if you don't concentrate, it'll pop up. And that's usually what happens. You can work real hard to try to keep that thing down there. And then all of a sudden, it pops up. And in the same way, in the same way, we kind of go about our lives and we kind of just try to push this thing down and ignore it. We just try to act like everything's okay. And people say, how are you doing? Great. We just try to cover everything up. We paint things up. We, deck, we just try to make everything okay. Instead, I think we need to learn to hear the groaning. We live in a broken world. So in 2007, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And... Uh, I remember people uh, trying to be encouraging. And uh, they would say, well, God is sovereign. His ways are bigger than ours. That's true. That's true. Uh, And they would say these things. But something wasn't right. Or wasn't sitting right with me. And one day I sat down at my computer and I started typing. And I typed him a letter. And I said this, I said, Dad, you're not supposed to have cancer. Well, cancer is not by God's design. We live in a broken world. Things are messed up. And as you suffer, the God of heaven is grieving with you. That's the truth. Things aren't supposed to be like this. Things are messed up. And so, we're living in this era. Um, we're living under the effects of this, this curse. Well, you know how God promised in Genesis 3.15, right with the curse, he promised a deliverer. He said, the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman is going to stamp the head of the serpent. And he gave that promise. And it was vague, There wasn't much there. I mean, you really boil it all down, there's not much. We just know a deliverer is coming from the seed of the woman. That's all we know. Well, we have the third section, the rising action. You might call this the development of the plot. Um, We have the promise here. And from the moment that God introduces this deliverer, we have expectation developing. Expectation. And all of a sudden, the people are looking 
for this deliverer? Is it him? Is it going to be him? Is this the one? And the expectation starts to grow. With every generation, it continues to increase. And so along the way, God starts taking this vague promise that seems very wide and general, and he starts narrowing it down. And he starts giving more and more detail to this promise until Galatians 4. I better back up. We'll get there in a moment. Till Galatians 4, verse 4, the Bible says, In the fullness of time, in the perfect time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And so God delivered on his promise. He delivered. And the neat thing is, folks, is that from Genesis 3, verse 15, from that point on, the story is moving in the direction of a person, Jesus Christ. The whole story is moving towards a person. But that's not it. God made mankind in his image. He breathed the breath of life into us and we became a divine community like God. When mankind sinned, death came into the world as a reality. It took this divine community and it brought death to the relationship between God and man and it brought hostility to the relationship horizontally, man to man. But God has a program to form a new community in the person of Christ. And so this story is not only moving towards a person, Jesus Christ, it's moving towards a new divine community formed in the person of Christ. The church. We are a divine community. We're a called out community. We're called out of a fallen world. We're called out of a fallen community to be part of this divine community. God has breathed his spirit into the church. And we have peace with God and peace with each other. And as we live together and we interact with each other, we reflect God to the world. In John 17, the high priestly prayer, you're familiar with that prayer, right? Near the end of the prayer, um, Christ says, and I pray that they might be one. And then what does it say? So that the world may know. See, this kind of unity is not possible outside of Jesus Christ. And so anyways, we have this rising action going here. Well, the fourth uh, stage is the climax. And uh, we call this the resolution of the conflict. 
Uh, it's only started, and so I'm calling this a cross. It's only started. Christ came, and uh, he died on the cross. He defeated death, and he began this program of redemption. And the church uh, was born here as well. And so we have, this has already taken place, right? But we wait. We wait for what I'm calling climax two, which is when the restoration is completed. The crowning takes place. The first time Jesus came as a suffering servant. The second time he comes, he comes as a reigning king. And I think from what I heard Calvin's talking about this part, but Christ is coming to set all things right. And so sin messed everything up. The world is not supposed to be like this. And Christ is coming to set it right. And so the best is yet to come. Um, This didn't happen yet. So where are we right now? We're in here somewhere. Uh, Theologians sometimes refer to this as the place between the already and the not yet. We're stuck between the already and not yet. Already Christ has come. Already death has been defeated. Already uh, the program of redemption has been initiated and begun. But it hasn't yet been completed. And we're still waiting for that day when it's finally finished. And then, of course, we have the epilogue, the closing. The story begins in paradise with a tree. And the story ends in paradise with a tree. This is just the greatest story. And... Sometimes we take the Bible and, like I said, we chunk it all up and we fail to connect the dots. We fail to put it all together. There are two testaments. There are, but they're part of the same story. And uh, so we're stuck here, as I already said. Um, We're still living with a world that's groaning. And uh, my prayer is that we learn to hear the groaning and accept it. Point our children to, the, to, to it. Let them hear the groaning. And the groaning, the emptiness is what drives us to Christ. So what? So, so what, what's the big deal about this overarching story? Why is this important? Well, I have a couple things that I'd like to suggest to you as application or things that uh, I think call us to, to some kind of action. The first thing is read. Um, let's get into this story. And everybody's different. And so uh, what works for one person might not work for you. Uh, be, be, be realistic with who you are as a person But we need to start reading. And we need to immerse ourselves in this story. We have a problem because we are so busy. 
and we find time for all kinds of other things. But the greatest story ever is something that is growing more and more foreign to us in a lot of cases. We need to read. We need to get into the story till we know it, cover to cover, till we can, till it's a part of us, till we are living it out. <clears throat> a second thing we need to do is realize that this is the truest story. And uh, I don't know if that's grammatically correct to say it that way, so if it's not, just bear with me. This is the truest story. Why are we so distracted with so many other stories? Why are we so fascinated with so many other stories? And I sometimes wonder if it's a trick of the enemy to bring so many competing stories to our attention that captivate us to the point where we ignore the true story, the truest story. This is the truest story. The neat thing about this story is that it delivers. I don't know about you, but there have been times where, or when I saw a good book, and I, or I thought it was a good book, and I started reading, and I kept waiting, and I kept waiting, and then it had this little climax, and we got to the end, and I was like, that's it? That's it? I didn't do anything. Um, do you ever read a story where, you know, it, it has all this great drama and then it gets to the climax and it's, it kind of fizzes out and all of a sudden you turn the page and it's the end of the story? You're like, that's it? How empty? The biblical story is not like that. The best is yet to come. And so this is the truest story. And uh, let me just take this one step farther. Movies are the same way. And I know that uh, too many young people are spending too much time watching movies. And they don't deliver. You can spend two hours watching a story or a movie, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's over. And it doesn't do anything for you. The biblical story is the truest story. Everything that is real finds its place in the biblical story. And that's why I say it's the truest story. Thirdly, this is our story. It's ours. We right now are part of a worldwide drama. It's unfolding right now. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but it seems like one of the things that our culture is fascinated with is drama shows. Have you n noticed that or seen that? I don't know. But people are really into this, like, drama, um, real-life drama, you know, where there's people living in a house and they're being watched by video. And it's like, you know, what, what's with that? People seem to be real fascinated with this um, drama stuff. Listen, we are part of one. We're all characters 
in a drama that's unfolding right now. We're still stuck in the story. We know what happened in the past. We know what's going to happen in the future. Let's get um, on with it. <laughs> let's, let's get involved with it. Let's start living this story. This is our story. So my encouragement to us tonight is as we think about God's story in education, what makes Christian education unique is that we have God's story. And everything we teach, the way we look at life, the way we process life, the way we encounter situations takes place in the context, in the backdrop, or with God's story as a backdrop. And this is our story. And we need to start calling our young people to it. We need to help them understand that they are characters in it. The realities in the story are their realities. This is where we're at. And uh, let's not forget who we are and somehow rip ourselves out of a story and start to try to embrace a alternate story that the world is creating. Um, because it only results in more confusion and complexity. So, I hope what we talked about tonight was helpful. I hope it can be a blessing in your life. Thank you for your attention. And uh, I'll turn it over to Michael.